0: Big talks fail to establish a production ceiling while US markets respond to a disappointing May Jobs report. I'm Albert Liu and this is the Power and Market Report for Saturday, June the 4th. Thanks for joining me today. Got a great show. I'm going to talk about the meeting, the OPEC meeting that resulted in, well, nothing. No production cap, uh, which was the goal. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Also, want to talk about the OECD's call for global fiscal stimulus. Also, this weekend, the Swiss will be having a referendum on a universal basic income. I'll give you my thoughts on that. And I'll also have footage from my interview with Dr. Mark Thornton. Uh, He is the senior fellow, uh, a senior fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute and I get his thoughts on the Swiss referendum as well as the possibility of a Brexit. Let's start with the market update first though. Friday was a crazy day in the market. We got a very poor jobs number and most importantly it was a surprise jobs miss. That sent the market tumbling. The Dow lost 100 points almost immediately before making up Most of it, later on in the day, the Dow closed down 0.18%. That makes it down 0.37% for the week. The S&P was also down 0.29%, making it basically even for the week. And the NASDAQ was down a little over half percent on Friday and uh, up 0.18% for the week. So let's talk about OPEC. On, I think it was Wednesday, they were previewing this OPEC meeting that was coming up and of course hopes in the industry that this would result in production caps and bring the price uh, back up to something that's more sustainable. And uh, there was an interesting uh, interview with Brian Sullivan on CNBC where he talked about what we could expect and uh, what the oil ministers were thinking in terms of price, so check this out.
1: Heading into the first of its two
0: annual meetings here in Vienna, Austria, there are three big questions that OPEC must answer. Number one, will the run back to $50 for oil be enough to satisfy many of the most cash-strapped OPEC members, such as Venezuela, Nigeria, and Angola? In the media scrum on the way into his hotel earlier today, the Angolan oil minister suggested that 50 might not be enough, but 60 maybe. The tender is it is okay, but uh, maybe 60 dollars per barrel. So I th- I thought that part at the end was really interesting where you have the oil minister pondering whether the price should be $50 or 60. He says, "No, probably not 50. That's too low. <laughs> Basically, there are uh, countries within our cartel that are really struggling and and need a higher price, so yeah, 60 is probably pretty good," he says. And uh, notice how in a in a cartel arrangement, the price is set not by the needs and demands of the market <laughs> um... the supply and demand curves uh, so to speak no it's set by the needs of the producers budgets and so this is quite unusual in a free market right where consumers are, are king here it's the producers that are king they decide what they need and they set the price accordingly uh, very strange but the good news of course is that uh... all of this failed the discussions broke down and there will be no uh, production ceiling, which is often the case with these cartel arrangements. Uh, They only work when the government's got its uh, uh, boot on the people's throats. uh, If it uh, resembles anything like competition, meaning there's outside players, um, it breaks down because the the players themselves, they cheat on each other, they uh, raise production above their quotas, they will give discounts, in sneaky ways and of course there's people outside the cartel that will come in and smash the price, which is what we've seen. Uh, So this is great. This is Cartel Busting 101. I also want to talk uh, about a recommendation out of an organization uh, that goes by OECD. I call them the Organization for Economic Collusion and Destruction. Um, Their official name obviously is something else. Uh, But this clip is interesting because now they're talking, I guess, quite predictably about the need for fiscal stimulus.
1: That was the main message in a report today from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a global group that brings together market and non-market economies. In its latest forecast, the OECD says global growth will remain just 3% this year, or the same as 2015, and rise only marginally to 3.3% in 2017. Growth is seen weakening in the U.S. to below 2%, and there was little change in the subpar outlook for Europe and for Japan. The OECD even slashed its forecast for China by nearly a half a point to 6.5%. The OECD calls it a low growth trap. The reason why we're in a trap is
0: because there's insignificant aggregate demand. In other words, businesses' investment says, well, I'm not gonna invest and hire people and give them wages because I don't see any demand out there. And then, of course, since they don't hire and they don't generate wages, in fact, there isn't. So it's a low growth trap. Okay, so according to this economist, it's the classic Keynesian death spiral right where there's no aggregate demand and those pesky producers they just stop expansion um, they, don't they know don't they understand how this works <laughs> um, funny so uh... but but this is uh, expect more of this right because now they're calling for governments to act they want governments to engage in fiscal stimulus which means what tax borrow and spend uh, on their own projects, uh, benefiting their cronies at the expense of all of us. Uh, this has been coming for quite some time and uh, you can just tell, you know Larry Summer started it a long time ago I think and other people, I, I remember Nuriel Rubini talking about it they've been kind of you know uh, drumming this beat for a while uh, and now other people are jumping on and I think it's pretty much set that we're gonna get this later on. Uh, of course it won't work just like QE didn't work and these same people uh, that are calling now for for, you know fiscal intervention were the ones calling for QE Um, and it didn't work and if they were so smart they would have told us that that it wasn't gonna work Uh, but either they didn't know or they were dishonest and so here we are um, three rounds of QE later and not to mention what's going on in Japan and Europe and still uh, we're stuck and now they say that the government's gonna expand more government spending Wonderful. uh... we know how that's going to end okay and then uh, finally before we get to the story in switzerland actually no i'm gonna get to that story right now actually uh... so the swiss are having a referendum talking about whether or not they should offer their citizens everyone who's legally there uh, a minimum a minimum salary basically a minimum income and uh... uh basically it's it's somewhat modest although you get it for doing nothing so I guess it's pretty good um, the thing is uh, is it good or is it bad now actually I think that it's not as bad as the other ways of delivering kind of forced aid I'm, I'm not for any of this wealth transfer obviously but uh, this is a much better way than a lot of the other ways that we uh, transfer wealth from from uh, one individual to another now of course, uh, the New York Times doesn't like it. They had an article uh, A universal basic income is a poor tool to fight poverty and right away you're thinking, hmm, there must be something good about it. if <laughs> The New York Times doesn't like it and they had a couple of quotes. I thought it was interesting. that Lawrence Summers. Um, he says that this is basically going to be too expensive. So he says if you, you know, go out and pay people to do nothing with a universal basic income Uh, it's gonna cost too much and his figure was one and a quarter trillion a year Uh, that's a small number compared to what we do in QE but he said um, you know that's hard to finance without cutting into programs that help the poor Um, but you know what he neglects is that this is this would be to replace those programs so all of that money would be available to fund this And uh, same thing coming out of a gentleman from the uh, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities Act. He's just saying it's too expensive. Uh, Where would the money come from? Well, why are they all of a sudden worried about our pocketbooks now? (laughs) They don't seem to be worried, um, uh, you know, other times. But uh, the other thing that's interesting about this and why I think it should get more support is if you're basically, you know, left leaning, want to help, you're do-gooder. This, in my mind, would be one of the first things that you would think of, right? Take money from the rich and give it to the poor. Um, Just simple as that and let them spend it. The problem is, uh, there are competing interests. Uh, On the one hand, you have basically the people who work in the bureaucracy who are the real beneficiaries of these programs, not the people who receive the checks. It's the people who receive the jobs and also the benefits and the pension. Those are the people who are really receiving the welfare. Um, so that's one strike against it and the other one is um, if you're basically elitist, a know-it-all and you think that these people who need help are so um, I guess stupid and useless that given the money they would go and make all the wrong decisions. So you actually have to go and not only transfer the wealth which is one big market intervention but also decide how these poor people are going to spend the money which is a, yet another market intervention So, those are my thoughts but what I wanted to do was talk to a real economist and find out what he thought so I reached out to Dr. Thornton of the Mises Institute uh, and to ask him these, to consider these very um, same questions so uh, I'm going to take a quick break here and when I come back I will have that interview with Dr. Thornton
1: Scott Nations, you called gold an expensive doorstop, you...
0: Dr. Mark Thornton is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. I welcomed him on the show on Thursday to talk about uh, this Swiss referendum on the universal income. First, I asked him uh, what his thoughts were on it, whether he thought it was better than what we had now. I also asked him uh, if he thought other countries would follow suit if this was successful. And finally, I just asked him, do you think that the referendum will pass? Here's what he
1: said. Well, I do know that most people, when they hear about this idea, they either uh, are happy or they're jealous. Uh, but it really piques everybody's interest, I think, the idea that everyone would get a guaranteed monthly income. And of course, in principle, I'm against. The whole idea of a guaranteed monthly income for all adults. Um, That's just um, an enormous welfare program. However, I I could see um, some possible merits. For example, if the guaranteed income were to replace, you know, all government insurance and welfare programs, uh, the economist in me would say, well, that might... uh, lead to a lot of more efficiency and scrap the enormous bureaucracy because you know in the united states three out of every four dollars of welfare goes not to welfare recipients but to the welfare bureaucrats it's kind of like a milton friedman idea it uh... you know you can see the efficiencies uh... that it brings people could choose their own health insurance program uh, they would get a lot more choice, uh, and it would eliminate a very wasteful and enormous bureaucracy. Uh, but like with most Milton Friedman uh, policy suggestions, there's always tends to be longer run problems uh, that develop. So, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised that the New York Times and Lawrence Summers couldn't understand that that very basic point is the the whole idea is to uh, eliminate uh, virtually all of these types of programs freeing up millions of people who are managing these programs uh, and, and if it was possible to get them in the private sector and you wouldn't have to worry about laying off all these government bureaucrats because they too would be getting a guaranteed monthly income check so you, it's, it's great in the sense that the objections Uh, don't really hold much water. A country like Sweden, for example, uh, has an an enormous social safety net, uh, but they're also in the process of trying to reform their economy to try to get back to that productive efficiency that they enjoyed prior to the, say, the 1960s, as the social welfare state got bigger and bigger, their economy became less and less productive. Uh, They realized the mistake that they made and they've been making uh, reforms and someone like that in in Sweden might say we could do a um, macro type of a program or maybe uh, take uh, that idea um, and innovate and experiment with it in their own economy. So, Well first of all I do think it's a good idea. I I think as a general rule that smaller, more independent states um, have better economies and do better economically over time. And I think the big issue here is, because the man on the street doesn't necessarily know that, but in the UK, they really know that uh, the European Union has really harmed uh, several uh, different industries in their economy, it's broad economic hardship, it's imposed Uh, European community rules and regulations um, in their economy and it's been very disruptive. And so it's causing a negative impact on in the UK. Uh, The UK uh, bears a heavy financial responsibility for financing the European community and the European uh, Union itself is a very bloated bureaucracy Uh, The bureaucrats make enormous untaxed income, Uh, the benefits are also enormous, and the layers of bureaucracy in the European Union um, are also enormous, and you really don't, uh, there's no control over these bureaucrats. Uh, They get appointed, Uh, very often those appointments are for life, and they can't, it's very difficult to remove them. And uh, even the European Parliament, they don't actually vote to determine a lot of these rules and regulations and budgets uh, and so forth. It's the bureaucracies and the panels and all of that that are making these rules and regulations. And because there's no real oversight, uh, the bureaucrats make rules according to their personal opinions, um, egalitarianism environmentalism, and of course, this is very disruptive to society, it's very disruptive to the economy, and the the financial burden of it, as I said earlier, uh, falls more heavily on countries like the UK. And so I think it would be very advantageous uh, to get away from the bureaucracy, the expense, the rules and regulations uh, which have had a negative uh, economic ep- effect um, on the people of the UK. And uh, of course, if Britain leaves, uh, you can probably uh, start to see uh, more countries entertain this idea and keep a close look on, you know, what actually is going to happen uh, in the UK. And as you also said, you know, the, the pundits, the mainstream media, uh, mainstream economists, Uh, have come out against the UK exit from the EU and contending that it's going to have very negative consequences. But as I see it, uh, from my perspective, it's going to help both the production side in the UK and the consumption side in the UK. And, you know, they've been, the UK has has undertaken some austerity measures. So Britons have been attuned to the, their economy, and they've seen that the austerity measures have had a positive effect. Not an enormous positive effect, but a positive effect, and uh, hopefully their, their intuition tells them that leaving the EU will also have a positive effect for them.
0: And my thanks to Dr. Mark Thornton for joining me uh, on the show.
1: Please visit
0: the website at mises.org, that's M-I-S-E-S dot dot uh, O-R-G find out about all of their programs they have at the institute including a couple of really great programs they have over the summer Um, and uh, don't forget they also have uh, regular Mises Circle events that travel around the country so definitely check that out once again thank you uh, for watching the program thank Dr. Mark Thornton for coming on and don't forget to visit PowerAndMarket.com for original market news and opinion and you can follow me at uh, Albert K. Liu on Twitter. That's the Power and Market Report for Saturday, June 4th. Until next time, take care. Hi, I'm Albert Liu, host of the Power and Market Report. If you enjoyed this video, I invite you to subscribe to my channel by clicking the button on the top left uh, of the screen. And don't forget, you can also visit us on Facebook and at powerandmarket.com. Thanks again for watching.